0: Hello, and welcome to the debut episode of the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. I'm Chad Swimmer, and I'm here with my friend Paul Shulman. And we're going to take you for a little walk in the backwoods, right, back
1: here at Jackson State Forest, and talk about uh, the logging that's happening there right now as we speak. And uh, I want to ask Chad if he wants to give us a little uh, background about our subject matter today.
0: Yeah, so we are the Trail Stewards. We are both a disclaimer on the steering committee of the Mendocino Trail Stewards. And we are working to change the management of the Jackson Demonstration State Forest. And for those of you who don't know, and I lived here for a long time without knowing that where I was picking mushrooms and riding my bike was actually Jackson Demonstration State Forest. It's 78 square miles of different flavors of redwood forest. All redwood forest is not created equal. It was bought by the state of California from the Casper Lumber Company in 1947. Was named after Jacob Green Jackson, the founder of the Casper Lumber Company, who acquired a mill and started buying up the hills in 1861. He became one of the biggest timber barons in California and had cut much of the old growth by the time that they were unable to pay their taxes. Well, his his offspring were unable to pay their taxes. They sold it to the state the state created a demonstration forest, and the idea was that they were going to demonstrate economical forestry, basically forestry where they could continue to pay the taxes and not have to sell it to another state. Um, We are the Trail Stewards. We were founded in March of 2020. We're kind of babies here. And we have a lot to say, but we are gonna mostly leave it to our guest. First though, I'd like to give you a little bit of news because a lot of you are wondering what's going on in the groves that, um, well, JDSF, is Jackson State, JDSF, is managed by CAL FIRE, which was the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. After um, 9-11, they decided to take on a law enforcement anti-terrorist bent since we know there's, you know, terrorists in the forest and uh, they needed to be CAL FIRE they have been logging this forest pretty much since 1949. When they first got it, there were still about six to 7,000 acres of full old growth, thousand year old trees that under the auspices of the state, they cut leaving about 460 acres as far as we know and some scattered trees. But most of the trees that are around are beautiful old growth that are, that are still around that are beautiful old growth have, um, they're less marketable. And, uh, There was only an eight-year break that they weren't logging, and that was thanks to Vince Taylor and the original, the OG campaign to restore Jackson State Forest. Um, There is active logging right now in six timber harvest plans in JDSF. Three of them are continuing from last year and the year before, so they're kind of wrapping up. And there are three timber harvest plans that um, one is the Casper 500, which a lot of people are aware of, and there's a lot of... um, of activity going on. There is the Red Tail Plan, which is right above Camp 1 on the Noyo River. And there is the Soda Gulch Plan, which is up by Chamberlain Creek. It is on the Big River. It's in the Big River watershed. And unfortunately, it's one of a number of of plans that have happened recently or are going to happen, both on Jackson and Conservation Fund land. So the cumulative impact, which is something we're looking at, is large. you probably know that there has been a tree sit happening in a large tree, large second growth redwood that is now known as Mama Tree, and that's um, pretty close to the town of Casper. And um, there are a lot of people doing a lot of things. So redwood Nation Earth First has been doing some spectacular organizing, and um, they've done a lot of things in different places to make people aware of this and to... Uh, help people be aware of how to safely protest. I would like to read a statement from them that um, Redwood Nation Earth First does not condone, encourage, or use the tactic called cat and mouse or running around in a logging plan while, people, while trees are being felled in order to distract loggers. We emphatically dissociate from it. People who have taken nonviolence training with Redwood, Redwood Nation Earth First agree to a set of nonviolence guidelines, including... One, we will be open, honest, and friendly. Two, we will use no violence, verbal or physical. Three, we will not do property damage. Four, we will not use illegal drugs or alcohol on actions. Five, we will not carry weapons. Six, we will not run. Please note number six. Trained activists approach loggers by first attracting their attention with noisemakers, then walking up to them as safely as possible. We cannot be responsible for all the people in the woods in Casper, but encourage all people to abide by these guidelines. When we encounter someone not adhering to them, we try to educate and de-escalate the situation. So this is really important because there are a ton of people walking around out there. People are aware of this and um, people have been out like trying to see what's happening. People who have no affiliation to any group just live in Casper or live around the area. And as I heard this morning, um, a mountain biker, who was from out of the area found himself right in the middle of a timber harvest plan because there's there are six trails that come from different trailheads with, at the moment, no signs, so people can, within a mile or two, maybe five miles, end up in a timber harvest plan. And um, the person rode right up on a logger, and they talked for a minute, and the logger fell a tree. And um, we have been not too happy about this, but, you know, the spirits have been good, so... Mostly people are are acting pretty well. Anyway, we have a really special guest here with us, and um, I'd like to introduce him. If if I may uh, interject, just one little
1: extra disclaimer is that the uh, opinions expressed on this show are those of the speaker and not the board of directors of KCYX
0: or the staff. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, Yeah, I I forget that sometimes. I get talking. And that was the uh, uh, statement from Redwood Nation, Earth First. So our guest tonight, our first guest tonight is J.P. O'Brien. JP is a Northern California native raised in the mountains of Trinity County where he also worked for the United States Forest Service as a wilderness patrol ranger in the Trinity Alps. He holds a bachelor's in applied physics, a graduate certificate in spatial statistics, and a PhD in climate and atmospheric science. He is currently a postdoctoral research fellow in the climate analysis section of the Climate and Global Dynamics Laboratory at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. As well as a research affiliate in the Climate and Ecosystem Sciences Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in Berkeley, California. His research primarily focuses on understanding natural climate variability and how anthropogenically forced climate change alters the probabilities for extreme weather and climate phenomena, including droughts, floods, and fires. Recently, JP has been pretty focused on what's going on in Jackson. So, JP, glad you're here. How are you doing?
2: Good, thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. Would you like to talk to us about timber harvest and climate change?
2: Uh, Sure, it's a a big topic. Um, I think the first thing to to understand when it comes to timber harvest and climate change is that um, timber harvest uh, is uh, essentially responsible for uh, the majority of CO2 emissions from our forests uh, currently. Ten times more than wildfire and insects combined, uh, so it has a disproportionate impact on uh, on CO two emissions, uh, and so ultimately, um, the U.S. Uh, combined uh, in total, um, the uh, the carbon footprint of uh, logging is as large as the commercial sector. The carbon footprint of the commercial sector. Uh, and And so ultimately, you are not going to be able to uh, to really affect positive climate change in the direction that we need negative emissions uh, beyond carbon neutrality without getting uh, getting a handle over uh, logging um, across the United States
0: thanks um I am curious about redwood forests partly because I live in a redwood forest and they're as we all know pretty majestic but they're pretty amazing scientifically what is so incredible about redwoods and redwood forest ecosystems
2: well i mean for one they're uh... they're globally rare right they only exist here in northern california um, and you know regrettably uh... when we uh... colonized this area the first uh... thing we did was cut them all down right there's only five percent of old growth redwood that were currently that are currently uh, are still standing and what's even kind of more shocking is that since then uh... we've cut down the majority of second growth uh... there's only two percent of original second growth redwoods still standing the majority of redwoods that are still standing are uh... are second or uh... third and fourth growth and even fifth growth redwoods um, especially in a place like jackson where you're on twenty year uh... harvest cycles right these trees just keep getting cut Uh, and cut and cut and they don't the forest doesn't develop it's not allowed to recover Um, and so ultimately uh, you know we're we're just holding this forest back from its potential to really combat climate change and as many of us know out there uh, redwoods sequester far more carbon uh, uh, per acre per hectare than any other forest type in the world Um, and so we have this essentially climate you know mitigation dynamo right in our backyard and uh, continuing to cut them uh, is not serving the public, and it's not serving um, the forest or um, the people.
0: Thanks. Um, I was really curious about why are second growth so important. Besides being endangered, I have heard that they're. Better for carbon sequestration than old growth.
2: They uh, they definitely can grow faster uh, than than our old growth. Uh, you know, uh, growth the rate of growth will slow down, um, and it's it's somewhat of a you know a lot of people will focus on well do you need to have these trees growing really fast to absorb the most carbon, or is are these bigger trees that have a larger leaf index area, are they absorbing the absolute most amount of carbon, even though they might be doing it slower, right? Um, and so uh, second growth redwood are really in this kind of prime life uh, space where they can really absorb uh, a lot of CO2 at really high rates.
0: I'm also, I've heard that quite a bit of the CO2 sequestration potential happens in the ground and not in the actual, in the tree or in the above ground part of the tree. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, ultimately about half of the carbon in a redwood forest is in the soils, Um, and, you know, that's what makes logging so detrimental is because when you have tractors going through tearing up the soil, a lot of that carbon is exposed to the air, which breaks down quicker, it gets emitted to the atmosphere on top of cutting the tree down which then removes obviously future sequestration potential of that tree because it's not alive anymore. Um, Further, it's sent to the mill, chopped up, uh, the slash gets burned. Uh, within about a year, eighty uh, percent of the carbon that was in that tree has been returned to the atmosphere. Uh, ultimately, only about fifteen percent of the tree that is cut down it ends up in a a long lived uh, wood product which you know long lived is uh, in terms of like the science is are about a, you know a uh, hundred years. Uh, and these trees can live for thousands of years. Um, so uh, it, it really, you know, if we're talking about mitigating climate change, uh, the best the best solution is to let these forests grow. Thanks, J.P.
1: Hey, J.P. This is Paul. Um, I'm interested. Uh, the governor was talking about uh, the 30 by 30 plan. And I'm wondering if you could explain what that is and and how JDSF could possibly fit into that.
2: Sure. Well, the 30 by 30 plan is um, it's a uh, it's an international movement. It's not just the United States or California, um, and it's a uh, so it's a, a global goal to conserve 30 percent of our lands by 2030. Um, Currently in California, uh, there are about 22% of it is conserved. So we got you know about 8% more to go. Uh, I think that comes out to be about 8 million acres. Um, so there's a lot of a lot more to conserve to get to 30 uh, by 30. Um, and JDSF is uh, 50,000 acres uh, approximately of forest that represents the best carbon sequestration potential that we have in california the state already owns it um and so if they are serious truly serious about conserving land this represents the lowest hanging fruit that exists in the state for uh for c- protecting from timber harvest um uh land that can really impact uh, in a very positive way uh climate change mm-hmm
0: can I ask a question in there? Sure. So in the terminology of thirty thirty, is the gap one, gap two, and gap three lands, mm-hmm. and, uh, and gap four. I understand that JDSF is gap three. Can you explain that?
2: Well, gap three means essentially that uh, there is extractive use. There are some protections, but essentially the forest is subject to extractive use, and that extractive use in JDSF is timber harvest.
1: It, is the gap, is that an acronym? Or yeah, it stands for GAP. Just stands for
2: GAP. <laughs> really? Okay. The, the GAP Analysis Project. Uh, um, mine
0: shaft GAP maybe? Yeah, <laughs>
2: it's it's uh, it's yeah, it's it's called GAP stands for the GAP Analysis Project. I see. Yeah.
0: And is it um, the uh, the ratio between uh, low protection and high biodiversity?
2: Uh, exactly. Yeah. So it, it takes into account the biodiversity in an area and uh, the kind of protections it has. Um, and, and specifically, these papers uh, that really focused on California—they speci- they note, well, and not even just California uh, in the United States, these Gap Three lands really have particular potential for rapid conservation because there's no ne- uh, land transfers necessary, right? It, it's, mm-hmm. They can be affected through simple administrative actions, um, and, and so this is why you know if the state is really serious about protecting you know forest and not just any forest but really like the best forest that we have for uh, sequestering carbon and mitigating climate change you know it's right here
1: and what what do you think the 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 impact of recreation is and how that factors into the situation
2: well i i always I always like when i i've read the jds management plan more times than i'd care to admit you know and throughout it they say you know recreation is a compatible use with timber harvest and Sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Half the for, or a, a substantial portion of the, the most recreated part of the forest is closed down right now. Um, but in the same token, uh, recreation is a compatible use for the climate uh, as being applied to climate mitigation, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and it's great. I mean, we all need to be outside. Um, the walking through the forest does wonders for our mental state and our physical state. And, um, you know, uh, it's been a tough year for all of us. And, you know, with climate change, it just gets going to get tougher and tougher and tougher. So uh, we really need to protect our forests because ultimately um, that's protecting ourselves. It should be seen as a kind of a universal form of self-preservation.
0: Thanks, this is Chad. And I just wanted to remind you that you are all listening to KZOAX 90.7 and the Trail Stewards Radio Hour our debut episode, and we're talking to J.P. O'Brien, climate scientist, and I'm here with my friend Paul Schulman. And, Paul, you might have another question for J.P. Well, I might. Um, this
1: kind of brings up something else that I'm quite interested in, is is what the relationship in your, in your mind is between timber harvesting and fire safety. And, uh, and whether uh timber harvesting near near communities makes them safer or not
2: yeah um it's it's pretty much uh the the science is pretty clear on this that if you're doing um commercial timber harvesting that you know pretty unanimously increases fire risk um there are small um situations circumstances environmental conditions in which you know maybe you do get some reduction but overall uh, between uh, the slash that's deposited on the ground and not cleaned up, between the making these huge thin areas uh, or open areas that receive then a lot of sunlight that then dry out, um, creating this really dry microclimate. Um, these, these, this increases fire risk, not to mention that these uh, open areas allow wind to really move through the stands to drive in-stand uh, flames, right? So this is associated with greater flame lengths, uh, greater uh, flame intensity, mm-hmm. which makes it uh, harder to combat. This is exactly what happened in Paradise, uh, where the fire moved so quickly through these thin stands um, that ultimately a lot of people lost their life. And it was uh, really... Uh, Really upsetting. So, I mean, uh, timber harvest, um, when in the co- kind of the commercial sense, uh, really does affect the forest in really negative ways when it comes to fire.
1: Because it does seem like uh, some of the arguments I've heard from the timber in- in- industry is that that we actually need logging to prevent forest fires. I mean, that, that's actually
0: a attack that they're taking.
2: Yeah, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, there, it seems like there's two sets, of uh, uh, two terms, and one is overgrown. The forests are overgrown because we haven't had fires for a long time. And then there's overstocked, which um, it's like a supermarket shelf, and it's overstocked. So we need to go take some of those trees out. And uh, it's... Uh, we have both been looking at the work of Chad Hansen who is not Chad swimmer who is talking right now and he is a wildfire ecologist and one of the things he's um, noted is is that this idea that the forests are really overgrown is really dangerous is not does not seem to play out because it's um, a lot of the fuel load is actually preventing the wind and preventing the moisture from evaporating so it's i've been really looking into this and seeing a lot of my, my old preconceptions vanish. And I, I would like to have you talk about, hear you talk about what are the variables affecting wildfire? Yeah, well,
2: with with respect to the forest being overstocked, I mean, that, you know, there's a, a lot of different ways to interpret it. Uh, in the carbon sense, uh, our forests have a vast deficit of carbon because our old growth forests held so much carbon and those are all gone and it's all in the atmosphere, essentially, right? So um, from a carbon perspective, our, carbon, our, our forests are hugely understocked. What people tend to think about are these, all these smaller trees that normally would be removed by low intensity wildfire, but we have suppressed all of that. So now we have these uh, very dense forests that are primarily made up of really small trees. Um, and it obviously makes it hard to hike through, but these, Small trees also act as ladder fuels, um, so I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna uh, you know essentially thin a forest, right? You need to be thin it to, and to get uh, you know fire uh, suppression. You need to be getting rid of these smaller trees, right? But that's not economic, so they don't do it. These smaller trees either get cut and laid down for as slash. Burned, which is carbon in the atmosphere, but the bigger trees get cut, and then you get these large areas of, of dry uh, uh, dry understory, which then uh, invasive brushes spread, um, and uh, the fuel moisture uh, gets exceedingly low, um, and a lot, and that feeds into climate change uh, in the sense that. Um, one of the key atmospheric variables of that drives wildfires what's known as the vapor pressure deficit and really it's all it all it is is the absolute difference in atmospheric moisture Um so relative humidity is often talked about but it's not a particularly useful metric uh... this is a human derived metric that plants don't care much about um because it's a temperature dependent metric but um the atmosphere uh... the vapor pressure deficit uh... increases exponentially Right. And this is how much uh, 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 moisture the atmosphere can actually hold, and, then, uh, and that increases. So uh, one way to think about it, and uh, just, uh, just kind of some representative numbers, if you have 100 units, just, uh, just units of whatever uh, in the atmosphere of moisture, um, then uh, at 50% relative humidity, uh, your vapor pressure deficit will be 50. You'll have 50 units of moisture and 50 units of excess space, right? And that would be your vapor pressure deficit. In a uh, warming climate, uh, the water holding capacity of the atmosphere increases by 7%. It's the Clausius-Clapeyron relation. So uh, increase the temperature of the atmosphere by one degree, now the atmosphere can hold 107 units. Uh, at 50% relative humidity, then you have 53.5% uh, or units of, of water vapor. So there's more moisture in the atmosphere, but now the vapor pressure deficit at an equal 50% relative humidity is now 53.5. Right, so that, uh, that ability of the atmosphere to draw moisture from the land surface increases. So this ultimately uh, dries out the land surface, uh... and trees uh... because they try to retain their uh... The, the moisture and the water that they have uh... end up closing their stomata um, which uh... so that's associated with lower rates of respiration and photosynthesis um, and ultimately it slowly uh... kills trees you can think about that uh... them as holding their breath essentially trying to retain the moisture and not lose it to this drying atmosphere um, so, and ultimately, in that drying uh, wildfire area uh, scales uh, uh, really closely with vapor pressure deficit.
0: hmm yeah. I, in my head, I hear that term and I picture the wildfire tornadoes that were happening in the, Was it that campfire in Redding? That a was a car years? fire. Car fire. So, is that is that a correlation?
2: Yeah, so, you know, there's definitely, it's, it appears that there is uh, a, an increase in wildfire intensity, right? So wildfire burned area uh, correlates extremely well with the vapor pressure, increasing vapor pressure deficit. Uh, the intensity uh, factor is a little bit harder to, to, uh, to quantify uh, because there's a lot of variables that drive wildfire intensity. Um, So there's been one study that uh, was uh, fairly recent that looked at uh, the Landsat satellite burned area, the normalized rate burned area index, uh, and they did not find any increase in the area of high-intensity wildfire patches from satellite uh, retrievals. Um, But at the same time, uh, it does seem that these fires are burning more intensely. You know, they're not laying down overnight right, because of high winds and low humidities or low uh, atmospheric moisture. Um, And and so, yeah, I think there's a lot to be still understood in terms of how intensity is changing.
0: So we're just about out of time, but I had one more question that i was on a walk last year with a forester from jackson state and we were talking about fires and he said well there's really nothing to worry about because there are not going to be fires here on the coast of the redwood forest because this is not a, a forest that burns and if there is something we can put it out pretty quickly but um, you and i have talked about this and uh, i'd like you to talk about what your opinion on that
2: well i mean uh maybe historically, this wasn't an area that experienced high wildfire, but ultimately the, uh, the return interval for uh, redwood, uh, for fires in redwood forests is about uh, 10 to 20 years, right? So that was the historic kind of return interval. And typically those fires were of low intensity because redwood forests are typically moist, or at least they have been. Uh, but uh, redwood forest ecosystems depend heavily on fog and that decreases in a changing climate. So with this, the atmosphere getting drier, um, that it, that prevents fog from developing, right? So we get we're gonna we get fewer and fewer fog days. The forests dry out, um, and Santa Cruz is a a drier climate than it is here. But we saw what could happen in Santa Cruz, right? Just on burning right next to the ocean. So this could happen here. We all take walks out in the forest, and I myself personally. Um, even after uh... this last little rain that we got walking in the forest today it was kind of astonishing that i could still hear crunch 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 under my feet right um, our, this forest is dry and most certainly could burn uh... just like santa cruz did um, so uh... And, and in a way it's uh... it's it's kind of a, a, not a question of if it's when and how bad will it be and if we keep timber harvesting uh, you know, we're only stacking the decks towards uh, more intense and, and worse wildfires. Well, on that you note. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks, JP. Yeah. yeah. We really appreciate you coming and, and, and joining us for the show.
0: And we're all actually in the studio together. It's yeah. kind of amazing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Times have changed. Yeah. So th- this was JP O'Brien, climate s- scientist, who has uh, also been uh, very active in the
0: Mendocino Trail Stewards. Thank you so much, JP, and thank you, Paul. And we're going to have a short break, and then we're going to come back with an interview, a pre-recorded interview with uh, Teresa Schulers. We are talking to a person many of us on the coast know well from her days at the college of the redwoods teresa schollers was head of the science department and leader of faculty but for me she was very special as my mushroom dendrology natural history and environmental science teacher welcome teresa and thanks for joining us on the trail stewards radio hour
3: how are you doing i'm doing great thanks when did you first move to the mendocino coast Um, My late husband and I moved here in 1975. He was uh, um, just working on his PhD in the pygmy forest, and I had just finished my master's degree on the pygmy forest, and we moved here, and I got a job teaching a class for college at the Redwoods called dendrology, which is a study of trees and shrubs, and so uh, we moved here and bought land and built a home and raised three kids.
0: Nice. You own some property, the land you bought, up on Surfwood Drive above Mendocino. And um, you once told me that you did horse logging on your property. Can you tell us a little bit about
3: that? Yeah. The property was logged in 1973 to 1974, but there was quite a bit of trees that had been damaged by tractor logging. And so we basically... um, My husband fell the trees I was actually the LTO licensed timber operator and I was a choker setter and would um hook the the um the chains from the trees to the horse and I had we had a quarter horse and he would drag the logs and um, we did that for a few years. We did end up buying a Kubota tractor just because it it was quite challenging, you know, on any slopes for uh, the horse to do the work. But we, we did both horse log- logging and, and tractor logging, and the logging was basically taking the damaged trees that um, had been damaged by by tractors and bulldozers, basically running into trees as they were going through the forest.
0: So those were the days of kind of the the back-to-the-land movement in Mendocino County. Can you tell us a little bit more about your life back then?
3: Yeah. I mean, basically, we had 40 acres, and we had a small organic farm that my husband sold sold vegetables. I taught at College of the Redwoods, Uh, raised three kids, went all through the school system here, uh, grew, grew all of our own vegetables, had horses, mules, chickens. Um, and I still have uh, no longer the, the livestock and the chicken, but certainly a big organic garden. And we uh, struggled financially until I got a full-time teaching job at College of the Redwoods in 1980, and then and, and that job basically supported the organic farm, which is often what you have to do when you're trying to make a living from, from farming. And we sold about $10,000 worth of logs a year up until the, the 1988 when my husband was in a car accident and passed away but um there was enough we actually had 60 acres at that time and so there was an, enough logs that we could take out of the forest um, pretty much by hand with with minimal equipment and doing uh, little ground damage and that that also helped support us
0: So you and I have walked a lot in Jackson State and in other areas around here and we've talked about the effects of logging and you're you are an ecologist and you've um, pointed out to me a lot of the the damaging effects. But since you yourself have logged on your property, can you tell me about that?
3: Yeah, I am an ecologist, My my degree's in ecology from Davis, Master's in Ecology, and although I did subsequent work at in, in Berkeley in systematic botany, uh, my heart's always been in ecology, which is really the interrelationships between organisms in their environments and how interdependent they are. Logging, um, the, one of the biggest impacts of logging is the ground disturbance that happens with machines and reducing canopy, that's the shade. And and there's a lot, a lot of other effects of logging, but those two things really impact both climate and species. Um, So people need wood for lumber, but uh, I have especially thought in recent times with climate change that we need to, we really need to be thinking about how we go about doing logging. Um, I can continue on that vein. Um, Basically, at this point in Jackson State Forest, which is supposed to be a demonstration forest, um, they are trained as foresters, which... As foresters, they are growing a crop of redwood trees, and their whole outlook is looking at how to produce larger trees faster. And it's very different from an ecologist that is looking at all the different species in the forest, from the plants, the animals, the fungi. And the current regime of targeting Redwoods to cut and taking out other species has led to a drier and drier forest environment. through kind of a complicated scenario that not everybody is aware of, uh, uh, aware of. The complicated scenario is the other big tree species there are Grand Fir, Douglas Fir, Hemlock, Bishop Pine, and these are host to fungi. People, The fruiting body is called mushrooms that lay an intricate network of mycelium in the ground that attach to the tree roots. And the the plants get uh, more water and minerals through this bonding with the fungi. And the fungi get carbohydrates from plants' photosynthesis. This mycorrhizal attachment lends resilience to the trees in terms of drought what in the 1970s we would have rain in the 60 inches in 50 inches in the 40 inches and in the 70 inches today well this year 19 to 20 inches is what we've had and we are in a crisis in terms of dryness currently when you look at the THP prescription to what they're cutting and what they're logging is they're taking out other species because of trees because they are not as economic, and they are promoting what they call late seral development of redwoods, but they're really promoting large, empty, dry spaces with no trees, and then other trees that are just redwoods left after the timber harvest plan, this has cut out the mycorrhizal association. And so all of that network underground that is helping the forest resilience towards retaining moisture in the ecosystem is cut out. That's pretty disa- disastrous if you're thinking about the current um, wildfire crises. Our forest here used to be very wet with twice as many days that had summer fog. Summer fog is necessary for redwoods. They have to have summer precipitation in order to survive. If you reduce the summer fog days by half, which is what has currently happened with climate change, plus you take out the other species of trees that hook up to the fungi, that transmit water through the forest and retain water in the forest, then you are going to exacerbate the wildfire condition so that not only are there going to be wildfires inlands, we unfortunately may be facing wildfires on the coast, which is something that used to happen in a very slow rate in terms of fire intensity and fire size and having catastrophic fires here in the coast was something none of us want to see
0: if i remember correctly in your natural history class you said that historically the coast experienced fires about every 15 years can you talk about that a little bit
3: yeah, they're actually a member of um, Jackson State Forest staff, Bill Baxter, did a study with some other people and looked at um, the fire scarring in, in Jackson State Forest. And it actually, what they found was ac- very surprising that uh, there were fire scars, if you extrapolate out all the all the data that they had, that showed in some areas within Jackson State Forest there was fires even as as often as every five years. Now, remember, these trees uh, last to 3,000 years old, and the fires that happened in those days, it, what it looks like from that data is that they were uh, smaller, less-intensity fires. Um, and. You know, we have hundreds of lightning storms here a year. We just put them out because we all live in the middle of the forest, and people um, are trying to save lives and save property. So, um, but fires used to be more common, but the climate then also was very wet and very damp, so you didn't have these explosive fires that have happened inland. But yes, fire. All the all the plants in the redwood forest are adapted to fire. The redwood trees stump sprout. Most of the shrubs, manzanitas and silalos all stump sprout. The the plants like the trilliums. The actual heart of the the organism is deep underground. So having light fires go through the forest um, is actually something that not only didn't hurt the fire in the forest, it was actually promoting. Um, healthy growth.
0: um, Listeners heard a couple weeks ago a talk uh, with Will Russell, San Jose State professor and he's done a lot of studies on redwood forest regeneration take advantage of their natural restoration. What are your thoughts on this?
3: What Jackson State Forest is doing is what foresters are trained to do and what they're trained to do is to grow trees and they're focused on redwoods. Um, And, in fact, if you go out, and I have done this with, with um, registered professional foresters in Jackson State Forest and Um, looked at an area where they have logged they're very very happy because to them it's exactly what they want they they're large areas where openings where redwoods then are going to be able to grow very fast and there are areas that where you have redwoods left of all sizes and from the redwood perspective it is um it's achieving their goal what is important to me as an ecologist are all, not only all the other species that are basically negatively impacted by taking the canopy away and ground disturbance and huge amounts of slash deposition, you are going to decrease your species diversity and you're going to dry the forest by cutting out the mycorrhizal associates. So unfortunately we're talking two different languages and this is something that i think is it's really important for us to kind of come to grips with it it's not easy to to log a forest and have a healthy forest remain so you you actually need somebody with the mindset of an ecologist to be in and on the planning and at this point this is not the way that demonstration in Jackson State Forest work they don't have anybody that's that is. That's their primary goal: is looking at the whole forest. They're they're trained to basically produce a product, and um, they're also trained to fight wildfires. And those are their two goals, which um, you have to understand that in order to look at how different the goals are for people like myself that want to maintain the whole forest and and actually I think that one thing that they really don't understand is that the current regime for logging is is dangerous dangerous to us because of increasing wildfire wildfire potential um, unfortunately the way they're looking at it, they're thinking that you can have less wildfire because they're cutting out other things, and they cut trees down, and there's big empty spaces in between. But when you look at fire science, which they should be looking at, you actually see that the drier the soil, the drier the plants, the more explosive the plants are. That's what happened in Paradise when trees literally exploded because everything was so dry, and the species were in a dry environment and our southern tip of the temperate rainforest that we call the redwood forest is drying out due to climate change and that is that should be an important driver just for safety much less anything else um, for us to change the way we do logging.
0: So recently there has been a lot of back and forth between um, the trail stewards and various other groups in CAL FIRE. And Helgi Ng, who until recently was the deputy director of resources for the state of California, kept pointing out that, you know, we need wood. And if we don't get our wood here, we're going to get it somewhere else. And so from an ecologist's perspective, how should we be logging right now or should we?
3: Well, there's a couple of things. One is um, I, I I really believe in, in sustainable logging. I believe in um, using wood. But I think we have to change how we do it. And unfortunately, it's just like corporate farming where 10,000 acres was cheaper. We could get a product out of it, and um, it was economic. And until people actually figured out that we were... Literally poisoning the the water in the central valley, that you know we had more diseases in our in our species. So organic farming and sustainable agriculture basically came away with a better way of of producing food. We also need to do that same paradigm shift with logging. Um, And in my opinion, Jackson State Forest is, it's not Jackson State Forest, it's Jackson State Demonstration Forest, and one of the things that I would like to challenge them to do is they're supposed to be demonstrating how to sustainably log a forest, and to me that is the whole forest. So some of the things I would like to challenge them on is instead of focusing on board feet, at this point, we need to know more about things like what to do with slash, how not to dry the forest. Uh, We need to be measuring temperatures and soil moisture in these areas where they've cut all the other species out. We need to actually figure out how to be the example, we meaning Jackson State Forest or public land, how to be the example for industrial timberlands, because they are private industry going there for a profit. Jackson State Forest is a public land that is supposed to be a demonstration forest. So to me, one of the first ways to change things is to change how people think, and how people think has to be through education, and that comes from getting people on their staff that aren't just biologists or a foresters. They need to actually be be trained in ecology so what they can look at that whole system, so they can look at water dynamics and mycorrhizae and other species. They just hired a new biologist, and he's a registered professional forester. And it's, it's a different window you look out when you're looking at how to grow just trees. So we need to look at other windows. We need to have other backgrounds so we can get together and talk about how to solve these problems. Um, and not, I don't want to NIMBY and not in my backyard, you, you know, and then have everybody go out and buy lumber and that they're raping the land someplace. I, I do believe that Jackson State, that, frankly, I think that original idea of a moratorium was a good idea because I think we need to step back a little bit, especially now, now meaning 20 inches of rain this year, and maybe look how to do things to have the result be a safer and more healthy ecologically fit forest
0: well we are getting low on time and we're definitely going to have you back but um i'd love to have you briefly comment so you are the rare plant and vegetation chair for the dorothy king young chapter of the california native plant society um what are your concerns about the thp approval process
3: so I, since the 1970s, I've been the rare plant person for the local chapter of California Native Plant Society, and I recently took over the vegetation chair. Um, when anybody does any kind of project in the state of California, um, and they need a permit, it triggers something called the California Environmental Quality Act Act. The timber harvest plan is supposed to be the sequa equivalent. That means instead of going through the CEQA process, they are supposed to do <clears throat> everything that the CEQA does. In CEQA, you don't you, you can't build you can't build a project, you can't do a mall, you can't do houses until you do your biological surveys ahead of time and so you can figure out how to mitigate any damage or at least CEQA is not a process that says you can't do something. It is an information process for the public and for the regulators and for the politicians to decide what they want to do with their local jurisdictions. And what happens in timber harvest plans that is incredibly unusual is that they get their timber harvest plans approved before they do any of their surveys and, and then so they'll put in low ro- roads, they'll 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 start actually impacting the environment because I think the attitude is if they find a rare plant, they just go around it. And one of the things that they're not looking at is what, what we botanists and ecologists called sensitive natural communities that we're figuring out that you might save a few populations of rare species, but the if you, it's hard for locals to believe this, but the Bishop pine forest is is rare, the Grand fir forest is rare, the Sitka spruce forest is rare, there is a chinkapin tan oak forest that is rare, and if we go ahead and allow the THP process to not really follow. SEQUA guidelines, then these rare habitats will be impacted before we can even see that they're there. They haven't been mapped. They haven't been looked at. So as the Native Plant Society representative locally here, um, it it concerns us greatly that work is being done and planned before um, information is gathered.
0: Well, thank you very much. Is there anything quickly you'd like to say before we get back to you next month or the month after?
3: I just think it's important for all people to um, get involved at all levels. And um, I think we locals need to not be polarized in f- in in for and against. I think we need to come to tables to actually share our knowledge so we can actually make... Um, changed together and i worked through redwood summer and back when people were screaming and you know people did bad things like spike trees and other people were out there with guns and you know i think we need to be peaceful we need to be mindful and we need to be passionately protective of our forest and families
0: well thank you so much for being with us and we will talk to you more soon thank you And thank you, Teresa Schollers, although we recorded that the other day. Um, I'm Chad Swimmer, and we're back with the very end of the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. Paul. Yeah. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, it's good
1: to, It's good to do this. This is, uh, just to let everybody know, this is our debut show. Uh, we're going to be regulars in the rotation of the Ecology Hour. will be the third Tuesday of every month. Uh, will be a show uh, focusing on uh, uh, forest conservation, forest
0: management, logging, and specifically Jackson State Forest. And I want to really quickly tell you about what's happening next week, which is the Ecology Hour with uh, Anna Halligan. That is correct. I'm reading it off my little phone. It is the um, Anna Halligan of Trout Unlimited, the fish files. She is going to talk about She's going to have an interview with David Dral, USFS hydrologist, and it'll be focused on a discussion about how water is stored subsurface locally, which I really want to hear about, because I was thinking about that when we were talking earlier and hearing from JP. JP, is there anything else you'd like to say?
2: Um, I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to it, protecting our forests. Um uh, serves the greatest good in terms of people climate change, wildfire mitigation, biodiversity, um, health and recreation. Um, in this time of accelerating climate change, uh, it is the best use of our forests is to protect them and let them protect us. Amen. Yeah, I would say so.
1: And uh, Chad, do you want to describe the um, the
0: coalition? Yeah, there's actually a couple coalitions that we are a part of, but primarily we are a part of a new coalition to protect Jackson. To This is... Um Kind of uh the new campaign to restore jackson forest we have a lot of different people involved the coyote valley band of pomo who are engaged in government to government consultations with cal fire and the government of california to recover their ancestral lands we also have redwood nation earth first we have paella which is a group that has been uh, it's the pacific alliance for indigenous environmental action. We have EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center from up in Humboldt. Families for the Forest which every Saturday has been bringing kids out to the Mama Tree to do some really good art and bio blitz activities. Tomorrow we have, there is going to be Redwood Nation Earth First is putting on a peaceful demonstration at the kiosk in Casper which is uh, up the Casper logging road and it's gonna start at 5 a.m. We are also part of a different coalition, which is the Mendocino Environmental Action Collaborative, which is working has been working with the mill site group. And we, we don't wanna be separate because we gotta think that the, the reason why the mill site in Fort Bragg is polluted is because of logging. And we don't want to continue to leave these messes all over our world that we don't know how to clean up and that people, you know, they they cut and run. And they leave with the profits, and they leave the mess behind. And we are dealing with that here. And
1: uh, one of the things that we're working towards, and I know it sounds like a big ask, but basically uh, if the state uh, can change the way that they manage their forests, uh, that's what needs to happen. It could be a demonstration forest. We just need to be demonstrating uh good modern science and 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 what that asks us to do
0: and if you're interested in any more just go to our website uh, at stewards.org and there is a lot of information there and some good photography as well thank you Art Milky, and thank you John Klein and thank you Paul and thank you JP